Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, come together this evening to focus upon your word because we know that in your word we have hope. And hope is not some uncertain optimism, but it's a, a certain and confident expectation that you have redeemed us and there is a future destiny for us with you in heaven and on earth. And, Father, we know that our lives have been redeemed. They've been bought with a price, and therefore we are to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. And as such, as citizens of this great nation, we need to be uh, involved. And uh, as good citizens, we need to be civically minded, and we need to be involved in these issues and let our, our voice, our opinions be heard and in 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 expressing our views in a wise and um, a wise manner that, that wins and influences people. Father, we pray for this ordinance, that it will be not be voted on tomorrow, not be approved tomorrow, that it will be voted down, and we pray for wisdom, uh, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, that would influence the thinking of the, uh, the, the people on the city council. Father, we pray for us that our, tonight, that no matter which way this election or this vote goes tomorrow, that we recognize our hope is in you, and our trust is not in man, but our trust is in you and that we look to you for our real hope and security and stability, not to, not to government and not to human institutions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We're continuing our study on dispensations, so a very important topic, a very important doctrine in Scripture, one that is not taught that much any day. I had a, a wonderful opportunity yesterday to have lunch with a man that I have uh, known of for many years, he is, his name is, uh, and you'll get to know him, his name is uh, Dr. Ken Hanna. He is, uh, uh, he is reti- somewhat retired now, partially retired now. He has been the um, a president of several different Bible colleges, academic dean, I believe, or administrative dean, administrative vice president of Moody Bible Institute. He was the president of Winnipeg Bible College, uh, Bryan College, and he retired in the late 90s uh, from teaching and was teaching part-time at Dallas Seminary when they called him out of retirement to come down and head up to Dallas Seminary campus here uh, in Houston. And he, is, uh, he got his THM in 1961 and his doctorate from Dallas in 1963. And as he put it, he's, uh, he's definitely old-school Dallas, uh, which is very good. But uh, I've been looking for someone that we, I can use as a substitute on Sunday mornings. And so uh, I, I had been aware of him and been thinking about him for a while, and so I gave him a call. We had, uh, we had uh, lunch the other day, and we were talk- he goes to First Baptist Katie, and the pastor there is Randy White, whom I also know, and we were discussing some other uh, pastors and churches in Houston as we were kind of going through his background. And he said, you know, the funny thing is I'm going out there to First Baptist Katie and the pastor there who's a Southern Baptist is a lot more dispensational than some of these Dallas Seminary graduates and pastors today. And that's sadly, that's true. And that my point in that illustration is, first of all, to let you know that um, probably in the fall uh, when I'm gone to Israel, Dr. Hannah will come over and, and uh, teach for a couple of Sundays and he'll be uh, excellent. He's, uh, he's a good teacher. You'll enjoy him. And secondly, it's to make the point that dispensationalism isn't taught, and it should be, because it uh, it breaks down the Scripture so we understand that there is a structure to God's revelation. It, it's not He didn't just plop down revelation. You compare the Bible to um, the Quran or Bhagavad Gita or uh, Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon's the Book of Mormon, or these things, they're, they're all written by one person at one time. The Bible is written by over 40 different authors over a period of uh, covering at least 2,000 years, probably 2,200 years, in uh, three different continents, five or six different countries, by men who came from all different levels of society, uh, kings, shepherds, farmers, um, herdsmen, uh, fisherman, uh, a Pharisee, a converted Pharisee, Paul, and yet they spoke with one voice. They didn't contradict each other. They expressed the same opinion on everything without, without distinction, which is remarkable. You couldn't take all of us 
in this room as closely as many of us think like each other and come up with, with the kind of unity that you have in the Scriptures. That is because that the real author and ultimate author is God the Holy Spirit who worked in and through them. And so these these ages, the, the structure of Israel, uh, the structure of history that is revealed in Scripture is the outgrowth of that progress of revelation. And I think that over the last few years, I, I, in my own thinking, probing new un, and deeper understandings of just the significance of that progress of revelation is important, and that is so critical as part of our uh, understanding of the Scriptures. Now, we've been looking at the covenants, that in the Bible we have biblical covenants, not the theological covenants of covenant theology or Reformed theology. Those covenants are called the covenant of uh, works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. You won't find those anywhere in the Bible. They are theologically uh, deduced and imposed on the Scripture from a theological system that is not grounded inductively in Scripture. And I make that point because you can also derive certain things inductively from Scripture, and then you can deduce things from that. But your primary, uh, I mean, your, your, your primary premises are from the Scripture. And then you put those together and deduce conclusions from that. That's the difference between a biblically deductive theology and what I would call something that's more of a uh, more more of a philosophically driven uh, deduction uh, of theology. So we've looked at these covenants because the covenants are from God. He's revealing new information new responsibilities to the human race in these covenants. And through those covenants, he structures how uh, how he is governing the human race and holding the human race accountable. The Gentile covenants at the top are eternal. You have the creation covenant that gets modified because of the fall, and that becomes known by the name the Adamic covenant. And then uh, human race deteriorates into such evil that God destroys it in judgment in a worldwide flood, and then uh, he reestablishes the covenant with with new uh, with, with some revisions, which we studied last time in Genesis chapter nine one through seven, and that's the Noahic covenant that is still in effect today. When we see a rainbow, it is the sign of that covenant, and it's still in effect today. Now, we got that far last time, and starting tonight, we're going to go back and cover a couple more things related to the, the, the age of the Gentiles at the beginning, but then we're going to get into the Abrahamic covenant, which is the foundational covenant for the rest of the Bible. And you have to understand the Abrahamic covenant to understand everything from, from the rest of Genesis to uh, the prophets in the Old Testament to uh, the gospel message all the way into the uh, epistles. Everything flows out of the Abrahamic covenant, which is then uh, expanded on. Uh, the three main elements of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. Those are expanded on in the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jer- Jeremiah 31. And then there's one temporary covenant in the Old Testament designed to be temporary, and that's the Mosaic covenant covered in Exodus 20 through 40. Now, we looked at this chart on the ages of civilization, that the first age is the age of the Gentiles. We've covered that now. We finished that, except I have one thing left that I want to go back and wrap up, and that's the last part of divine institutions, which we had introduced two or three lessons back. Tonight we'll begin with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the two dispensations that make up the age of Israel, the dispensation of the patriarchs, or promise and the dispensation of the law. And then this is going to conclude with uh, a hinge dispensation, which we'll look at next time related to the period of the incarnation, uh, the messianic uh, arrival of the Messiah on the earth, and his rejection at the uh, first coming of Christ. And then we have the cross, and then this will be followed by the church age, which is the age in which we are now. It is distinct from the age of Israel, and church age believers are distinct from 
Jewish believers. There's a different administration. We'll cover that. Then this will be uh, the end of the church age has a seven-year, the last seven years actually the age of Israel, which is called the Great Tribulation, uh, which precedes the second coming of Christ. The church age ends with the rapture of the church, and this is followed not immediately. There's a transition period of uh, we don't know how many years before the tribulation actually begins. That's always surprising. Every time I say that, there's always somebody, there's a little light that goes off. Somebody says, really? Yeah, the rapture ends the church age, but the tribulation doesn't begin with the rapture. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a covenant with the with Israel, and that's what kicks off the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 related to the uh, Daniel's 70th week. Then that ends with the second coming of Christ, the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist, and the judgment on Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And then Jesus Christ establishes his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, which is called the millennium, and that's the messianic age. And then the present heavens and earth are destroyed. God creates a new heavens and new earth, and we go into eternity future. Now, several lessons back when we were going through the initial dispensation and the dispensation of innocence, that was the first part of the age of the Gentiles, I introduced a term, the divine institutions. This is a term that's been used by Christians to speak of these absolute social structures that God established and embedded within human society uh, from the beginning of creation. They are for the entire human race, and they're designed for the stability of the human race to protect it and to provide for its perpetuate, perpetuation. Something's not right back here. Um, and so these institutions were created by God. They came from God. They're not the result of human beings who came along and said, you know, it'll work better if we do it this way. That would be a convention. Last week, because I was ill on Thursday night with bronchitis, uh, you sh- showed the f- uh, video from when I covered this as part of the uh, two messages I gave at, at Cornerstone Bible Church in, in, um, in, in Lubbock, and I, I went over this. And in, in covering this, I make a distinction between an institution, which is something God establishes, which is an absolute, and versus relative, relative conventions. Uh, for example, uh, some people may think that in Texas, Friday night high school football is an institution, especially if you're from a smaller town in Texas. Uh, it used to be back when I was growing up that the Dallas Cowboys might be thought of as an institution. But if you're from New England, you don't care about those things. See, it, it, it doesn't transfer necessarily across, across culture, uh, even subculture. So that's a convention. It's not an institution. We're talking about institutions which are absolutes that are for every human being in every single society. And there are five of these. God creates man to be responsible and accountable for his actions. This is the issue related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were accountable, and because they failed, there was a penalty. Uh, Secondly, God established marriage. Uh, Marriage uh, in the garden is between uh, Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. It's not between two men, not between two women. God specifically created them, male and female. That just doesn't refer to their uh, physical makeup, but also relates to their psychological makeup, that there are distinctions. That doesn't mean one is superior over the other because both are created in the image of God and both are equally given the responsibility of carrying out the creation uh, covenant and the creation mandate to, uh, to multiply, fill the earth, and to subdue the earth. And so we're in, still in that process of subduing the earth, even though it's now become corrupt because of the fall. Anyway, third divine institution is family. God established family for the perpetuation of the human race. Uh, when you have homosexuality, since that's an issue related to the uh, law today, uh, when you have homosexuality, homosexuals never propagated anything because it's, they're incapable if... If everybody became homosexual, there would not be a next generation. Uh, any society that has idealized homosexuality uh, finds itself going out of existence. 
Uh, this is not God's design. This isn't the, neither is this the basis for personal animosity or hatred for anybody. Homosexuality is just as much an attack on marriage and the family as adultery or fornication or any number of other sexual sins. And, uh, and it, there's a, a host of sins that are destructive of a nation, and this is no different from any other sin. And so one of the mistakes, I think, that a lot of churches and a lot of Christians have made is they isolate this as some sort of super uh, sin, and it's not. It's just another sin. And, um, uh, but it is an attack on the bedrock of what provides for nas- any kind of national security Government comes into existence later, as we saw last time in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, and then with the Tower of Babel, the collapse there, the, I mean, their, their arrogant attempt to build a, a, um, um, a tower against God, uh, God brought judgment upon them and scattered the languages, and this led to the development of, of nations. So that uh, what we see is the first three divine institutions were established before the fall, and they're designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization. And they were given in a world where there was no sin. So that's the, they're, they're given to man before there's ever any sin to promote his, his development and advance and productivity. After sin has entered into human history, then it has to be restrained. We saw no restraint on the development of sin in the antediluvian period, the period before the Noahic flood. And so the government, the institution of government and the institution of nations were given by God, authorized by God, All as we've studied in Romans 13 on Thursday night, all authority is delegated from God. And so government is delegated by God through the Noahic Covenant and the authorization of capital punishment for murder. And then subsequent to that, with the rebellion of Nimrod and the inhabitants of Babel in building the Tower of Babel, uh, they are attempting to rebel against God. The Tower of Babel wasn't just an architectural project. It was a theological uh, theologically motivated project that they were shaking their fist against God. They were thinking that if God judged us and destroyed the earth by water, then we're going to build this tower to heaven. Uh, we're going to show how we're united against God, and uh, we're going to build it so high uh, to heaven that the floodwaters can't uh, judge us. So this was the arrogance of man in Genesis chapter 11, and we still see that same arrogance today, for here's a picture of the... Um, translation uh, building for the uh, European Union in in Brussels. And this is d- intentionally designed by the architect to uh, reflect the Tower of Babel. And so it's, it, it is, it's it pictured as an unfinished building like the Tower of Bab- Babel from the picture we, we saw just before. And so this is, again, man's attempt to try to unify to solve his problems apart from God. We have many examples. The League of Nations was one example, and that morphed into the United Nations. And so we see this picture, which I took outside the entry to the United Nations building in New York, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 2, that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the purpose statement, as it were, for the UN, that they are going to end war. Yet, if you read Isaiah chapter 2, this is a messianic statement. This is what the Messiah of Israel is going to do uh, when he comes, is he is going to end war. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. He will end all war when he comes to establish his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 3 focus on that promised future kingdom that the Messiah will bring. And so in violation of an understanding of the fifth divine institution, which is nations, you have uh, these organizations like the EU and the UN and others who are asserting that they can do what God says in the Bible only he can do because only God can solve that problem. In Acts, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 26, 
the Apostle Paul says, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind. This clearly states that God made the nations. They are not a product of human convention or human ideas, but that God made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has established the boundaries of the nations, both physically in terms of geography, but also temporally in terms of when they begin and when they end. Now, as you saw in the uh, talk I gave the other night, there has been a lot of discussion among a number of pastors over the years as to whether or not Israel is a divine institution. And uh, I'm not sure if we want to use the term divine institution, but if we go back and think about the term divine institution, or the definition of divine institution, that this is for every human being, something God has established in the and is embedded within the uh, social structure of the human race, that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, how you handle these institutions depends upon whether you succeed or fail as a as a people. And so there are aspects to that that fit with Israel because in the Abrahamic covenant, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God establishes a universal principle that applies to everyone, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, male, female, American, Chinese, Russian, Indian, whatever you are, those who bless Israel, God will bless. Those who curse Israel, God will curse. It's the same kind of principle that if you honor marriage and marriage becomes the foundation of the family and the family becomes the training ground for the future generations of a nation, then that is a nation that will be productive and will succeed. And if they're, whether they're believers or unbelievers, if they have a strong marriage uh, um, value and a strong family value, then they will provide uh, stability for the future of that nation. If a nation it honors Israel and blesses Israel rather than curses Israel, then God will in turn bless that nation. And we see this in the Abrahamic covenant. So this takes us to our next covenant. We've looked at the three covenants that are actually part of the, of the creation covenant, the creation or Edenic covenant, the Adamic Covenant, and the Noahic Covenant. And now God, because of the Tower of Babel, is no longer going to work through the entire uh, the, the entirety of the human race, but is going to call out one individual and work through that one individual and his descendants. And so he calls out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and gives him a distinct mission. And that mission is because Abraham is from a family of moon, sun and moon worshipers. That's in their background. He's in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in the southern part of modern Iraq. And God calls him out and tells him to leave his country. Lech Lecha, Genesis 12.1, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And so God is calling him on a mission. Here we go. I put just, I'm going to go through several things and, Genesis, I thought I would just go over to uh, my Logos software here and put this up on the screen. God is telling him to get out of his country, to leave and to separate, to be distinct. That idea of being separate or distinct is inherent in the word kadosh or kadash for the verb, kadosh for the noun, that is translated holy. It means to be separate, distinct, or unique. God is going to call a holy people who are separate and distinct to him, and it is through him, through them, that God is going to bless uh, the human race. His verse two gives us his promise, the promise to Abraham: "I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing." See, there's a contrast here. If you don't read the context of all of Genesis, you miss it. In Genesis 11, Nimrod and his followers who built the Tower of Babel said, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to uh, oppose God. And in contrast, after God has brought judgment on them, God calls out Abraham, and he says, I will make your name great. 
but Abraham is called to a position of obedience. He is already a believer in God and a worshiper of God, but now God is rewarding him with additional blessing, and this is at the core of the Abrahamic covenant. This is really sort of a a foreshadowing of the covenant. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, that doesn't sound right. That almost sounds like a conclusion uh, in the way it's translated in English. It's really a command. As a result of God's calling Abraham, he says, you are to be a blessing to the world. So that was a mandate there to Abraham. It's an imperative, it's an imperative form in the Hebrew. And then in verse 3, God says, I will make you a great nation. Oh, I'm excuse me. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the point that God is making here is that he is the sovereign who controls history, and he is going to be the sovereign protector of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And those who uh, curse uh, him, and the word there for curse in Hebrew is a word that means the first word for curse is a word that indicates to treat with disrespect. The second word is to judge harshly. So what God is saying is uh, the one who treats you lightly, the one who treats you with disrespect, I will judge harshly. And so this becomes a principle of God's governance in history that, that he has called out the Jewish people, and this is an eternal covenant that is not reversed. It's not dependent upon Abraham or his descendants' uh, response to God. God is unconditionally and unequivocally bestowing this blessing upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it doesn't stop here. You'll see that I've highlighted certain verses related to the covenant. He reiterates this in relation to the land in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where he gets to promises to Abraham, I will give this land. And, and later in Genesis uh, 13, he'll tell him to walk the land, and he'll describe the land. And um, maybe that's later in this chapter. No, it's later in chapter 13. He'll have him walk the land. So this is talking about a physical piece of real estate. And guess what? How much real estate did Abraham own in this promised land? He never owned anything more than the burial site at the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. That's it. That's all he ever owned is a plot to bury his wife Sarai and for himself. And later his sons uh, Isaac and grandson Jacob were also buried there uh, with their wives. Jacob's wife Leah's buried there. Rachel's buried in, in Bethlehem. And uh, uh, Rachel and uh, excuse me, uh, J- Jacob is uh, buried there as well. Uh, Jacob and Leah, Isaac and Rebecca are buried there. And so this is a sign. I mean, you can go there today and see uh, at least the monument building that Herod built that's over their graves. They're buried down in a cave underneath the ground. You can't go down there. Uh, but this that's the only land they 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 had. So God promises land to Abraham now. Now, since Abraham never owned it, either God is a liar. Or God is going to raise Abraham from the dead in the future and give him ownership of the land. And that was exactly the argument that Jesus used against the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in a future life. That's why they were sad, you see. So you have the uh, God calling out Abraham, making this promise. He reiterates it again in chapter 13. Down in verses uh, 14, 15, 16, he says, uh, he has uh, Abraham in verse 14, lift your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Not just for a, not just for a while, but forever. This is an eternal, unconditional contract that God made with Abraham. He gives the title deed to the land to Abraham. Now, the Israelite people have not always enjoyed the privilege of living there. That's because God said you can't enjoy the privilege of your ownership unless you're obedient. And, in fact, when we get into the next chapter that we'll look at in chapter 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to take them out of the land for over 400 years before he brings them back. 
And so there was a purpose for that, as we'll see. So he says, I will make your, he, he reiterates the land promise, all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Uh, he, he reiterates a seed promise, I will make your descendants as dust of the earth. So if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. And then he says, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. This is an unconditional, irreversible uh, gift. Then we skip down to chapter 15. Chapter 15, Abraham is concerned because he still hasn't had a child, and so he thinks that his heir is going to be a servant, Eliezer, and God says, no, let me correct that. It's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be a child uh, from your own body uh, in verse 4. And then God took him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. That's a promise, again, a reiteration of the seed promise. And at this point, we're told uh, and reminded, actually, because the verb tense in the Hebrew for believed here is a perfect tense indicating he had already believed. See, otherwise, you know, some people think, well, this is when Abraham believed. But if Abraham believed here, then he's not a believer, and God's already blessing him with all these blessings as an unbeliever. Uh, he was already a believer. In fact, Jewish tradition says that he became a worshiper of Yahweh when he was around 50 years of age. Uh, he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, then God said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Again, a repetition of this land promise. It's not just one time. The land of Israel, and more than what we think of as the land for Israel, has been given for eternity to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the Jewish people, not Abraham, Ishmael, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Esau, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what distinguishes a Jew from others, uh, descendants of Abraham. And we're told at the end of the chapter that this is part of the covenant. On that same day that God made these promises, he made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I've given this land. How many times have we heard this now? This is like the fifth time we've heard a reiteration of this land promise. I've given this land from the river of Egypt. Uh, there's a debate over just exactly what that is, whether it is the Nile or the Wadi Haresh, which is down in the uh, Sinai Peninsula. And I think that there's a stronger case for that uh, for a lot of technical reasons. Uh, to the great river, the river Euphrates, which is all the way over into what is part of modern Iraq. It would include all of the territory of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, all the way over to Iraq and up into Syria. Uh, and so that's all the land that God has given to them. Then we have another uh, reiteration of the promise in Genesis chapter 17. This is when the covenant is actually cut. God comes and appears before Abraham and promises, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. That's the seed promise. I will, in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come for you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all of the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Now, what part of that is is not understandable? All of the land, not some of the land, it wasn't given to the Arabs or the descendants of the Arabs. It was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever. That God didn't go back on his word just because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah. It's an everlasting covenant. It's still in effect today. Uh, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child shall be circumcised. This was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which, was, uh, which was circumcision. And then in verse 19, he says to, God said to Sarah, uh, Your wife shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Yitzhak. Uh, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. And this is what happens. You go through Genesis, God reconfirms several times the covenant to, to Yitzhak, and then several more times he confirms the covenant with, uh, with Jacob or Yaakov. So uh, in verse uh, 21, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this set time next year. Just a little note. Is that a prophetic statement from God? Yeah. How do we understand it? Is that allegorical? No, that's one of those great promises. God said, 
you know, uh, you will have a son, had a literal son, literal name, timing was still within the year. Scripture interprets itself, and we see that Scripture is, interprets itself always on the basis of a literal hermeneutic. Okay, then we go through this. God reconfirms the covenant with, Gen- with Abraham one more time in Genesis chapter 22. So that covers the Scripture part. So as we look at the Abrahamic covenant now, we see that there's these three basic elements, land, seed, and blessing, which will later be developed in the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in, in Jeremiah 31. Now we've already looked at these verses, so I'm going to skip these slides. And we're going to look at... Um, did I miss something? I think I did. Okay, let's look at the Scripture. We've looked at the Scripture. Uh, second thing in terms of the outline, this next slide is going to start with C. So uh, B is the persons involved with the covenant. That's God who's the party of the first part. Remember, it's like a contract, like your mortgage statement or like your credit card. Uh, God is the party of the first part, and he is contracting uh, with Abraham. But Abraham has no stipulations or obligations for the fulfillment of the contract. It's all God. In Genesis uh, 15, when God actually cuts the covenant with Abraham, and when there's a sacrifice, and they take the, sacrif- the animals for the sacrifice and kill them and, and cut them in half and lay them on each side, typically if two people were, were um, binding themselves to this covenant they would walk together between the animals. But God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham so that God alone passes through the animals, indicating that this is a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means it's one-sided. God is bound to it. There's no stipulation on Abraham's part uh, for the ownership of the land. As I said, the title deed is given, but God doesn't let them move in because God owns the... Actually, he's the ultimate landowner of all land. God doesn't let them enjoy the privilege of ownership unless they're obedient. So the second aspect is the persons of the covenant. The third aspect deal with the provisions. And I've got 13 different provisions that are in the covenant. First of all, he promises to develop a great nation from Abraham. Look how many different times... Uh, that's mentioned. That should be Genesis 12, 2, 13, 16, 15, 5, 17, 1, 2, and 7, and 22, 17, which we just looked at. Second, he promises land, an actual piece of real estate in the Middle East that is demarcated by specific boundaries. These are identified in Genesis 12, 7, 13, 14, and 15, and 17, 15, 7 to 21, and 17, 8. I know there are people listening going, I can't write that fast. That's okay. The slides will be up on the, on the website tomorrow and you can go back and look at them and, and get all this. Abraham himself is to be blessed and this went into effect immediately. And he is to bless others. And we see that, that he is a blessing to his neighbors. Uh, when, uh, uh, you have the, uh, Keterleomer alliance come through from Mesopotamia and uh, conquer all the various cities of the plains down around uh, what has become known since then as the Dead Sea, uh, and take all of these hostages and head off uh, north to Syria with all of these hostages and all the plunder. It is Abraham and his servants that take off after them and defeat that army and free the slaves, free the ones who are captured, and retrieve all of the plunder from the armies of uh of Keterleomer. And that's just one example of the ways in which Abraham functioned as a blessing to those around him. Fourth, God promised that Abraham's name will be great, and his name is great. He has been revered by his descendants, the Jewish people. He's also revered by other descendants, those who descended uh, through him uh, to, uh, in terms of the Arab nations, through Ishmael and through Esau. He's promised by God that those who bless him will be blessed, that this has nothing to do with 
what he's like. It has nothing to do with his personality or the personality of any Jewish person. It doesn't have anything to do with whether they're good, whether they're bad, whether they're likable, whether they're not likable, whether they're liberal, whether they're conservative, whether they're Democrat, Republican, Marxist, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, it is not a, uh, anyone who blesses the Jewish people, uh, they will be blessed by God. This is the foundational verse against any form of anti-Semitism. And Christian anti-Semitism is one of the worst things that ever happened uh, to, it, it, within the history of Christianity. And it was a result of a failure to interpret the Bible literally because they interpreted allegorically where Israel didn't meet Israel, Israel meant the church, the church didn't mean the church, the church meant, meant could mean Israel. You know, words lost their absolute meaning, and as a result of that, the justifica- they, they found ways to justify their hatred uh, for the Jewish people. And so God promised that those who curse him will be cursed, they'll be judged, and that in Abraham all nations will be blessed. And this, as Paul says in Galatians, that this is ultimately fulfilled through the seed that is Jesus Christ, who is the redeemer of all peoples, who paid the penalty for sin, who died on the cross and paid the penalty for all peoples of all time so that by simply trusting in him for salvation, we can have eternal life. It's not based on works. It's not based on uh, ethnicity. It's not based on economics. It's based on one thing that any human being can do, and that is believe. And if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you will be blessed with eternal salvation. And so it is through uh, Abraham, because Jesus was a Jew. That sort of surprises some people. I've seen pictures of Jesus in almost every kind of ethnic background you can imagine. Uh, But Jesus was Jewish. He wasn't a, uh, he didn't look like a Renaissance Italian. He didn't look like a black African. He didn't look Chinese or Japanese. He didn't look Hispanic. He looked like a Middle Easterner of the first century. He was Jewish. And it is through him, as a descendant of Abraham, that all nations are blessed. The eighth provision was that Sarah would have a son. It wouldn't come through some uh, substitute. It wouldn't come through... uh, uh, a slave girl, Hagar, or anything else. Um, God also prophesied in Genesis 15, 13 through 15, that uh, the Egyptian bondage, that they would be taken to Egypt and that they would be in Egypt for over 400 years. So God clearly was showing there was a reason for that, as we'll see. Because of their disobedience to God, God had to discipline them and remove them from the nation. That sort of foreshadows the numerous times that God has had to remove the Jewish people from the land because of their disobedience to God's command. Tenth point is that other nations will come from Abraham, uh, which is fulfilled in the various uh, Arabic uh, descents and Arabic tribes. Eleventh, uh, there's a change of his name from Avram, uh, which meant exalted father, to Avraham, meaning father of a multitude. Sarai, which means contentious, is changed to princess, Genesis 17:15. Uh, circumcision is the token of the covenant, and that was to set the Jewish people apart. They weren't the only ones in the ancient world that practiced circumcision, but that became uh, one of the things that distinguished them from all other nations, that and the observance of, of Shabbat. And you can imagine what a conflict that created later on when they're taken over by the Assyrians and they're taken into the Assyrian Empire. They're destroyed. The southern kingdom was destroyed in 586, and they're taken into the Babylonian kingdom, and all of a sudden it comes Friday evening, and they say, we're not working tomorrow. We don't work on Saturday. Nobody else in the ancient world took a day off. Well, the Jews are saying, not only we don't work, but you know we, we're circumcised. We got we got a lot of different things that distinguish us, and so all of this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant sets up uh, a new dispensation because there are new responsibilities given, new blessings, and this sets things up for uh, for the next dispensation. First of all, the next dispensation, God is now changing the way he's administering human history. And this next dispensation of the patriarchs, sometimes it's called promise, uh, but this next dispensation is covered in 
uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, through Exodus 18, 27. And then God's going to give the law at Mount Sinai, and that changes the administration again. The central person is Abraham, and the name patriarchs uh, recognizes that the governing factor here, the administrator of the dispensation, were the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then it's also called the dispensation of promise because it, this focuses on the promise that God has made to Abraham that he will be a blessing to all people and that God would uh, give him the land and make his, make his name, uh, his name great. There's a responsibility given in this covenant, and that is they were responsible to the obedience to the covenant, to keep the seed, that is the seed of Abraham, isolated from the surrounding pagan environment. They were not to mix and mingle. Now, they're going to fail, as we'll see, but they, the failure was that they began to assimilate. This has always been a problem in Jewish culture, and every time they get to a danger point in assimilation, something radical has happened in history, and they've been kept distinct. And now, of course, with uh, the existence of the modern state of Israel, they have a distinct culture and a place to go for safety when there is anti-Semitism dominating in other countries. The test was whether or not they would remain separate from the Canaanites, whether or not they would remain separate from the Canaanites, and they failed to do that. By the time you get to, to Jacob and his sons, his 12 sons, they're acting more pagan and more immoral and more radical than the surrounding uh, Canaanites. And there are several stories that are given uh, that exemplify that failure. Uh, they're intermarrying with the Canaanites. Uh, this is described in Genesis chapter 38. And so the failure is that if another generation or two had gone by, they wouldn't be distinguishable from the Canaanite culture. And so God is going to work through his sovereignty to remove them from the land of promise and to take them someplace where they will be in an enforced isolation, and that will be in Egypt. And that's the purpose for what happens with the whole episode with Joseph. God uses Joseph to uh, first to take Joseph out of the land, to take him down uh, to, to Egypt. He goes as a slave. Uh, he is then falsely accused by his owner Potiphar, of, uh, by his owner's wife, and she accuses him of, of attempted rape. And so uh, Joseph is thrown in prison. God is going to teach him some lessons in leadership and humility comes first. A leader must first be a follower. He's going to learn a few things. He's going to learn some humility and grace orientation. Then God will bring him out and elevate him to the number two position in Egypt. And then God is going to bring a judgment on the Middle East in the form of a famine. And the famine is going to force his family to seek aid from Egypt under Joseph's wise leadership. God forewarned Joseph through the dreams of the Pharaoh that this famine was coming, that they would have seven years of plenty. That was a time for them to store up, a time for them to uh, prepare for this time of famine, and then seven years of famine. And so during those seven years of plenty, uh, Joseph was placed in charge of all of the storehouses of the Pharaoh, and he oversaw all of the production and all of the harvesting and everything and, the, and, and storing up of the grain for the future. And so when the famine came and it became severe, and Jacob and the family are in uh, still back in, in Canaan, there, they, they know that there is grain, there's food in Egypt, and so uh, Jacob will send his sons down there to get grain. And lo and behold, they have a meeting with Joseph, and uh, we're all familiar with that story, and Joseph uh, doesn't reveal himself uh, to them at first, and they have to... Uh, uh, they have to go through, they, they, Joseph sends, sends them back because they didn't bring the youngest brother, Benjamin. They didn't bring their father. So they go back and they bring Benjamin. They go through this whole uh, charade. And then finally Joseph reveals himself to them. And when he does so, he then uh, tells them to go and bring their father. So this brings the whole family down into uh, into Egypt. But the Egyptians hated and despised 
the the Shemites. They they had they 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 had a degree of racial prejudice that would have exceeded that of any Ku Klux Klansman in the South uh, towards uh, African Americans uh, that you can imagine. And so um, they wouldn't e- even eat in the same room. Uh, they they would not take uh, uh, Hebrew women for wives. They just couldn't stand to be with them at all. And so this protected the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that over the next 400 years they could grow from approximately 70 people to a nation of approximately 3 million. And that is the time when God, uh, in his sovereignty, determined to bring them out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. So their failure was that they intermarried and assimilated with the Canaanites, and this threatened the security and the autonomy of the Abrahamic line. God's judgment was to take them to Egypt to enforce separation until the nation was large enough to survive, but God was gracious even with the judgment in preserving the nation ethnically and spiritually, and they prospered even in the environment of horrible, horrible slavery. Now this brings us to the next major episode, which is the Mosaic Covenant, which is the only temporary conditional covenant in the Old Testament, and we'll start there next time to cover the remainder of the uh, age of Israel, and then we'll address the question, what about the time of Christ? Is that a separate dispensation or not? And we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to uh, be able to reflect upon your sovereign working in history and that you have a plan and a purpose, and that you are taking the human race in a direction, and that that direction ultimately involves our salvation and our glorification with Christ and his return uh, to the earth to establish his kingdom. And as such, we know that there is a purpose for our lives that has to do with this eternal destiny, and that we should be living today in light of that destiny, living today in preparation for our future destiny as the bride of Christ to rule and reign with him during his kingdom. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with an understanding of these principles and and make us even more appreciative of the salvation that we have, that we did nothing to earn it or deserve it. It's simply by faith alone in Christ alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.